Our second lesson uh, comes from the last chapter of John. If you want to follow along in your own Bible or in a pew Bible, we'll be looking at the last verses of the 21st chapter, verses 15 through 25. This was actually the gospel lesson for a few Sundays back, uh, but I was not preaching that day. And this was not the focus of the message. But when I saw that gospel lesson, uh, I wanted to deal with it. And then when I saw that the gospel lesson for this Sunday is actually an illustration of the point I wanted to make about the John 21st chapter, I thought, well, we'll just have two gospel passages in our order of service this morning. So let us continue to listen for the word of God. Now, the context for this is this, the last uh, resurrection appearance as recorded by John. Jesus appears to seven disciples who, following uh, the crucifixion, had gone up to uh, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias is what it's called in John's gospel, and they were fishing, just trying to get away from it all. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea. No, I'm not going to read that. I'm starting verse Go to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you to where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say that he would not die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. I'm not sure about you, but on the whole, I regard inquisitiveness as a positive trait, don't you? I think it's a good thing when people are curious, when they uh, like to probe and examine and ask questions. When in my former church we had a new members class, it had been called for years uh, the inquirer's class because 
It was an effort to answer questions that people might have about this congregation, about the beliefs, about the history, about the organization, about the ministries of that church. So being curious and asking those kind of questions was considered a good thing. And yet surely each of us must realize that we get to a point, a point that's not rigidly fixed perhaps, when inquisitiveness becomes inappropriate if not even malicious and malevolent. Frequently you hear people say, well, there are no bad questions, there are only bad answers. No, there are some bad questions. Sometimes we ask questions we shouldn't be asking because they are invasive or there is a hidden agenda behind the asking of the question. Are you planning to get a divorce? How much money do you pledge to the church? How much do you weigh? <laughs> what did you pay for your home? In our gospel lesson this morning, the one from John, and we'll see in the one from Luke as well, we see examples of an inappropriate inquisitiveness. In the John passage, Jesus has just been uh, crucified. Seven of his disciples go up north to get away from it all. They've heard these wind-blown rumors about a resurrection, but they've not yet seen Jesus. And as they're out fishing, Jesus is standing on the shore, and he calls out to them, asking if they've caught anything they haven't. He says, well, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And you know that story. They catch a haul of fish so great they can't even bring it back on board the boat. And John is the first to recognize that that stranger on the shore is Jesus. And when Simon Peter agrees and thinks, yes, it is Jesus, we read that he put on his clothes and jumped in the water and swam over to where Jesus. Now, that maybe needs a little explanation. Uh, typically, back then, fishermen fish, fished in the nude. Now, I've known a lot of bass fishermen in my lifetime. <laughs> it's bad enough that they usually go out on the lake with coolers filled with Budweiser and other kind of uh, things, but uh, I wouldn't want to add nudity into the mix there. It, <laughs> Has, leads to all kinds of strange phenomena, I'm sure. So, at any rate, back then, they would fish in the nude. I've just imagined their wives back home saying, don't bring those dirty clothes home again, like that. So they would protect their clothes. I don't know if that's the case, but I'm sure they didn't have whirlpool washing machines back then to, to wash what they were wearing. At any rate, a tender moment occurs after Peter and John and the others finally get to the shore dragging the haul of fish we read that they cook some of the fish over a charcoal fire and it becomes a very intimate personal moment especially between Jesus and Peter because Jesus asked Peter three times do you love me and Peter says of course you know I love you tend my lambs feed my sheep three times he asked him we can only speculate as to why he asked the three uh, times. In all probability, it is because Peter has just denied him three times. So in a sense, Jesus is giving Peter uh, the opportunity to reaffirm his love, his loyalty, and his faithfulness. And he tells him to feed my sheep. And then he shares something with him rather ominous. He tells him what is in store for him in the future. 
Verses 18 and 19. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And then the writer, John, or one of his disciples, adds a commentary here saying that he is, this is a reference to the way that Peter would eventually die. And church tradition says that is the case. Eusebius says that uh, Peter was crucified like his Lord. He was led away to be crucified. And he made the request of his executioner saying, I am not worthy to be executed as was my Lord. And so they executed him upside down. That's why you sometimes see an inverted cross as a symbolic reference to the apostle Peter. But obviously... In his following, in his tending the sheep and feeding the lambs, Peter was going to become a martyr for the faith. But when Jesus told him this, what do you think Peter was feeling? Was he angry that Jesus was telling him what his fate was going to be, thinking that maybe Jesus should protect him from that, from martyrdom? Was he encouraged because... Jesus has enough confidence that he will be courageous and faithful going forward as he had not been looking back. Is he frightened? Is he grateful? Is he resentful? Because after all, Peter's the only one sitting around the fire who's singled out and told that his destiny is martyrdom. Well, we really don't know what Peter was feeling, but we can guess at it. And I think it's probably more than anything else, resentment. Because notice that when shortly after this, Peter, thinking about what Jesus has told him, says, well, what about him? What about old John over there? And Jesus says to him, what is that to you? Follow me. He brushes him off. It's a divine rebuke, if you will. And Jesus is saying in so many words, if John lives to be a ripe old age and dies in his sleep, or if he pours out his life's blood as a martyr of the church, what is that to you? What does that have to do with your faithfulness or your discipleship? Hearing our Lord's reprimand here reminds us of that darker and more ominous side to this business of inquisitiveness. Some inquisitiveness is inappropriate. Some of it is the product of idle curiosity or perhaps perverse meddling in the affairs of others. Occasionally, we use inquisitiveness as a cover for our own faults and flaws, as a way of distracting people from looking at us and focusing on someone else. But Jesus does not tolerate this in his disciples. He didn't then. And he doesn't now. So when Peter, realizing that death will be required of him, and says, what about old John over there? You know, the disciple you love. What about John? Jesus responds, what is that to you? You follow me. Surely Jesus knew that Peter would have his hands more than full just tending to his own discipleship, his own faithfulness and courage without worrying about what was going to happen to John or any of the other disciples, most of whom did die as martyrs for the faith. One publication that we are familiar with has contributed, I think, to the decline of civility in America and morality as well. 
the National Enquirer, the byline being, people with inquiring minds really want to know. Well, sometimes we want to know too much. Sometimes we want to know what's inappropriate or frankly, not our concern. I think this little tabloid is a great example of the darker side of inquisitiveness. It is a reminder that some of our questions are at best worthless and at worst malicious and malevolent. For people ask questions in an effort to cover up their own sins and failings or ask questions in order to serve their own petty purposes. But it's not just grocery store tabloids that do this. Even more reputable newspapers do it as well. Overstepping the lines, I think, of propriety and responsible inquiry from time to time. One prominent newspaper has as its slogan, all the news that's fit to print. Well, our understanding of what is fit probably has changed over the generations because it seems now that nothing is outside of being fit to print. I remember several years back now, uh, and I say this, I'm certainly not a fan of Pat Robertson, either from a political or religious point of view, but I remember several years ago, the press had a heyday because they revealed when the date of his marriage was and when the, the date of the birth of their first child was. I'm sure in an effort to embarrass or, or shame him, him and his wife, but is that appropriate for inquiry? It seemed to me at the time malicious at best. It was designed to embarrass Pat Robertson and his, his family. So far as I know, Pat Robertson has never claimed to be sinless or guiltless. And frankly, it's none of the press's business, none of the general public's business about a moral indiscretion earlier in his life. I think if Jesus could say anything to those responsible, he would say, what is that to you? You worry about yourself, follow me. Ordinary folks use this ploy too, don't they? We all do, usually in order to shirk our responsibilities or duties. As parents, we see it in our children, just as our parents saw it in us. I remember growing up from time to time, my mother would say, well, Danny, I'd like for you to mow the grass today or wash the dishes. And I would usually respond, well, what about David back there? My older brother, he's just fooling around with his butterfly collection. What are you going to ask him to do? And she would respond, not in those exact words, but what my mother would say was M-Y-O-B, which in our house meant mind your own business. That's not your concern what I asked David to do. Mind your own business. Different words, perhaps, but the same translation. If ordinary folks struggle with inappropriate inquisitiveness, so do religious folk. Arthur John Gossip, writing in the Interpreter's Bible, says, There is an inquisitiveness that hangs idly about the environs of religion that Jesus will not satisfy, a meddling with many things that are no concern of ours. Have you noticed how some inquiries can become inquisitions? That's what's happened in Luke 9 and our other gospel lesson this morning. The Samaritan village was not willing to receive Jesus or welcome him. So the two disciples said, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? 
All we're told is that Jesus rebuked them, and he may well have said, what is that to you? Follow me. Earlier in the chapter, the disciples are disturbed because another man is casting out demons, but not in Jesus' name. And the disciples want to know, what can we do about him? He's not part of our company. And Jesus tells them, quite frankly, this is none of your business. Whoever is not against you is for you. Don't meddle in that. I imagine the followers of Jesus were quite shocked when he said, when he was talking about himself as the good shepherd, as we saw in the opening call to worship, a passage that's always intrigued me. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. If each of us would do a better job in just minding our own business and tending to our own discipleship, we would have much less time and energy available to inquire about that of others. And yet we get drawn into these discussions as to who is saved and who is not saved. When did God ever appoint any of us or all of us to make that kind of decision? That is God's business and not ours. And yet we get drawn into these fruitless discussions. We have been commissioned to share the gospel, to tactfully and lovingly as possible, share what we know to be true with others, which they're free to receive or reject. And so we speculate, what about those people that don't respond the way we want them to respond? We ask the unanswerable questions born of meddlesomeness or, or curiosity tell me preacher you think those other people will be saved what other people well you the Muslims you think the Muslims will be saved will there be any Hindus in heaven or what about those countless millions who died without ever having heard the name of Jesus or the gospel the best response I've ever seen to this inquiry was given by the 18th century cleric and poet John Donne who says this and I quote now this is kind of stilted language but I love what he says to me to whom God has revealed his son in a gospel by a church there can be no way of salvation but by applying that son of God by that gospel by that church nor is there any foundation for any nor any other name by which any man can be saved but the name of Jesus but how this foundation is presented and how this name of Jesus is notified to them amongst whom there's no gospel preached, no church established, I am not curious in inquiring. I know that God can be as merciful to those tender fathers, as, as merciful as those tender fathers present him to be, and I would be as charitable as they are. And therefore, humbly embracing that manifestation of his son which he hath afforded me, I leave to God I leave God to his unsearchable ways of working upon others without further inquisition. I love that phrase, without further inquisition. Leave it to Dunn to say just the right thing. But some people inquire not only, not only about non-Christians, but about fellow Christians that don't come at the faith exactly as we do. What about Catholics? Oh, are all Catholics going to be saved? What about Mormons? They don't have the same view of Jesus as we do. 
What about the Unitarians? What about those TV evangelists? What about those other Presbyterians and those other denominations down the street? Or, more personally, what about old Jim who drinks too much? What about Lynn who had that scandalous affair? What about this one or that one? Whose faith or whose ethics or whose lifestyle is radically different from our own. From time to time, we may be curious. We may want to inquire about those matters, but we have much better things to do and not enough time to do them. More often than not, we would benefit if we would simply mind our own business in a spiritual sense. And when those questions of this nature come to our minds with regard to who is saved and who is not, who is in and who is out, let us remember the words of Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. In a moment, we will sing a hymn that I love. There's a Wideness in God's Mercy by F.W. Faber. Actually, there are about 12 stanzas to this hymn, and so uh, only a few selected have been included in our hymnal, but there's one stanza that is omitted that I've always loved, and it goes like this. But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify his strictness by a zeal he will not own. That is something I think that all of us present-day disciples should keep in mind. Let us pray. Eternal God, give us the grace to follow faithfully and obediently wherever you lead us and forbid that we should become distracted by the performance of others or the habits or beliefs of those who are not a part of our company. Help them and us to be faithful to your will as we are given to see it. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.